Hello and welcome to the Feral Logic Podcast, episode 0x001. It's Friday, January 25th, 2019, and I'm Vortex. And I'm Vega. And we're going to get started with Embed Dev Toolchains. Yeah, so I've been working recently with a bunch of different microcontrollers, um, STM32, um, Atmel AVR, uh, some pink FPGAs, uh, everything you can think of. And the general gist of it is, is all of the tool chains are absolutely awful. <laughs> that's actually the biggest thing that's been keeping me from playing more with FPGAs and stuff, because I just I just have no idea where, where to even jump in at. So I've worked with a little bit with both Quartus and Xilinx Vivado. And I can tell you for a fact that both are absolutely terrible. <laughs> Vivado is a little bit better, but it still is horrible. And they put everything they can think of behind a paywall. The worst one is uh, the compilation. They paywall the speed of it. So if wow. you don't pay pay much, then it's single core compilation. What? That's just, that's stupid. Yep. And uh, for the Vivado side, they make it so that if you pay more, you can even get it. So it only basically recompiles the stuff that's changed, which makes it not take forever. And like that doesn't sound that bad because you're used to like C, where if you write a Hello World, compilation is literally instant on any computer. But if you make the equivalent to a Hello World in VHDL, which I'm not really sure what it would be because it's VHDL, but whatever, or Verilog or whatever you're using to design things, compilation still takes like five minutes, even on a nice system because of what it is. So it's just awesome. And then the UI for it is any of these dev environments is absolute trash. So I've been looking into like open source alternatives. They exist. They're also trash. Uh, with some of the more like beginner-friendly ones, like the uh, Mojo FPGA, there's they have their own ID, which is basically a front-end for the Xilinx um, toolchain. Mm -hmm. And it's usable, but it doesn't give you any of like the block generation stuff or visually seeing what you're doing or anything like that. So it kind of kills it on that. And then that's also... It's open source, but it's weird enough that you couldn't really ever integrate it into a finished product so it's kind of useless it's a lose-lose no matter how you look at it so fpga dev is awesome <laughs> makes me really want to jump into it well at the same time like uh i took an fpga design class in college that oh my it was using an old version of quartus so it's particularly horrible and i suppose um that was Altera, which is now intel terra you know the whole joy of having no competition in that market um but with the old version of Quartus back when it was actually Altera, the UI was referring back to our old episode, uh, last episode, kind of like Eclipse, where there's four billion things in that menu and you can't tell what you're doing. But doing this, I did everything in raw VHDL for this class. We were required not to use any of the built-in generators. So we designed an entire um, Neos 2 uh, core, entirely raw uh, VHDL, didn't use any of the generators, did everything by hand. And even the language itself is terrible. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's so uh, have you ever written C at all? Very little. Uh, you know how when you uh, define a function, you also have to make the function header. I think yeah. is mm -hmm. what it's called. Uh, you have to do that kind of stuff with VHDL, but like three times over. It's almost Java like in that, but it's also low level. It's just, it's the worst of every paradigm you can think of. And it's not even programming. Interesting. So and as much as I'm complaining about all this, I still think FPGAs are awesome Yeah. because like I was able to design a soft core processor that I could raw write the instructions for and I could add more instructions to make it do whatever I want on the fly. Uh, or like we have the friends that work over at Crontech where they're designing slow-mo cameras with FPGAs. That's the kind of stuff you can't do on a normal processor and you just need insanely high O throughput. They can mm -hmm. do that kind of stuff. It's an, it's awesome. With my uh, pink FPGA, which the tool chain is made a little bit better, it still uses, uses Vivado as the main backend, but it has a custom Linux image because the uh, Zinc 7020, hopefully I got that right, main IC on there has an ARM core built into the FPGA so that you can have a CPU layer right next to your FPGA layer because half the time you end up implementing a soft core CPU on your FPGA anyway. So it kind of takes that out of the question. And then you just run Linux on that. And then it's running uh, basically a Jupyter Notebook where you can import FPGA slices, that's not the right term, but I don't know what else to call it, FPGA modules, into your Python code and mix FPGA code and normal CPU instructions in Python, which is brutally easy to develop, except then you have to still develop the FPGA, FPGA stuff in the normal... Um, why does everything with FPGA start with a V? Vivado, Verilog, VHDL, uh, normal uh, Vivado uh, interface, which still sucks. Okay. So, uh, but then even more on the dev toolchain side, like uh, working with um, the AVR stuff, so even the simple stuff. Uh, if you want to use debug wire, have fun. It sucks. 
so it really doesn't matter what you're developing. I think all of the t- tool chains are terrible. <laughs> I, I suppose what I want to get into on that is like, how do you make them less terrible? So, and first I want on that to, to know what, what have you worked with before? Like when you, if you've programmed an Arduino, do you just use Arduino IDE or what do you normally work with? I, I've used a lot of the Arduino IDE and my go-to if I'm doing something like this right now is uh, Raspberry Pi. Um, only because for me, it's a, it's an easier step to go, okay, I, I work with things like Python. I work with things like shell scripts and services translating that over to i have a big problem going from that to like real-time os doing chip mm-hmm. development stuff like that and that's some things that i've been working on so I, that's where i'm curious like where the best way to step into that is when you work with the uh pi do you have any issues with the 3.3 volt logic if you're aware of it i don't like so i'm i've, I've i have a video on my rom labs account where i'm working on a a raspberry pi based uh, RGB matrix con badge. And one of the things, the first thing that I did is I, I picked up what amounts to nothing more than a level converter um, mm-hmm. just to avoid that problem. Okay. So I'm aware of it. I know, I know how to avoid it. I was, I was just briefly curious on that, but back to the actual dev end of it. Um, so to make stuff suck a little bit less, I found that just putting the five minutes of research into not using the built-in IDEs for everything can make a huge difference. So I'm currently taking an embedded systems class where not really learning much because I sort of knew everything before I went in there. But um, the the first homework assignment literally had us just upload Blink to the Arduino using the Arduino IDE. And I'm like, but I don't use the Arduino IDE because it's terrible. Uh, actually doing code editing and it is god awful. Um, so like if you've, uh, what text editor do you normally use? Normally I use VS Code. Um, okay, VS Code. It, that's my go-to on normal systems. So VS Code, Adam, no matter what you use there, I think you could. I think you would agree with me saying that those are way easier to use than the text editor built into the Arduino IDE. Oh, of course. You get syntax highlighting. You get all the stuff that goes with it. So it's mm-hmm. it, and like the IDE has syntax highlighting. It's kind of crappy, but it exists. Um, but like my f- the number one that drives me nuts is and Adam at least I assume you can do the same thing in VS Code. If I hold Control and then click on another line, I can select multiple lines at once. You can't do that in the Arduino IDE. And yeah, and you, that makes it so much easier to do certain tasks. Yeah, we're just like fast commenting out where you just highlight code and then um, control slash, you know, to comment out or whatever. Like just basic stuff like that that you would expect any text editor for programming to do. The Arduino ID doesn't. And that gets heavily in your way. But then even stuff like the serial monitor, the Arduino ID serial monitor is widely regarded as one of the worst for working with that. So sometimes I use Platform IO, which is a Atom extension, which allows you to just puts some of the Arduino ID features back in, like it gives you access to all the Arduino libraries, um, but then also gives you access to the Atom editor because Platform IO is built on Atom. It still has issues. So then other times I'll use the Eclipse editor. I have that set up to program through my AVR Dragon, which is a ISP inline serial programmer for the Arduino where you plug it in through that weird six pin block at the back that nobody ever uses. Um, Unless you're flashing the bootloader on your Arduino, almost nobody's ever touched it. And even then, not many people bother to do that. Um, there's some weird times where you might. So if you have an official Arduino or one that's pretty dang close to the original, then it has another AVR core actually as a USB controller instead of the CH340 cheap one that the off-brands do. And in that case, you can actually program that. So you get stuff like um, MIDI functionality through that uh, original board, which normally you need like Leonardo for. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, but even stuff like that to do so is really not clean it's it's painful to set up and it's stuff that for the beginner learning it is awful and it's made a lot better by not using the official ide setting up platform io to do dev which uh, this isn't an ad for platform io i i actually don't really like it because it kind of takes over your atom install and you can't easily install two atom versions at once so it has some interesting issues but compared to the arduino ide it's a massive improvement Mostly because it's the Arduino IDE. Like, you're not really comparing to much here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like, I realize it's open source and free, guys, but come on. And Platform IO does have paid features. Uh, If you want to use their integrated debugging stuff, you have to pay, I think it's a monthly fee of like 10 bucks. Like, it gets pricey quickly. The professional, I'm I'm looking at the website now, the professional, yeah. Yeah. PIO, Unified Debugger. mm -hmm. And I haven't used that, and I have no reason to either. If I need to do debugging, I can do it through Debugwire, but debug wire is also horrible um as i've mentioned like 10 times and we continue mentioning because 
come on, guys, just use JPEG. <laughs> <laughs> I actually understand why they didn't, but there's a long engineering conversation there, and it's not really relevant. But going back to this, so like, if you want to get into FPGA design, I think that there's a lot to be said for doing stuff in other ways. Thankfully, with stuff like Vivado, it used to be true that you had to write all your stuff in either raw VHDL or Verilog. Uh, in my opinion, Verilog's a little easier than VHDL. Both of them are still harder description language, though, and they're both awful. Mm-hmm. Because you're physically describing what you want the hardware to do at a hardware level. And that just inherently requires verbosity. Like, there's nothing you can do about that. Right. Um, when you When you think about programming in Python, sure, you could write the statement by statement, like push this uh, character to the uh, screen, then, you know, write a string like that. But more than likely, you're just going to use a print function because that's what any sane person would do. Right. So uh, with Vivado, they actually, I don't know, I don't want to say recently, but I know it's a thing compared to it used to definitely not be a thing. Like old versions of Cordis definitely can't do this. It can synthesize C into uh, VHDL or Verilog and then upload and then compile and then run that, which is a lot nicer because now you can at least write in C. Yeah, and that's what that's where it gets confusing for me. It it is it's super confusing. And what sucks about it is it heavily depends on like what boards you're running. So with mm-hmm. the um relatively like I think it's about a two hundred dollar um pink FPGA board I'm running, you're r- designing your hardware in C and then you're running that code using Python in a Jupyter notebook, which you access over a web server. Like there's so many layers of what the heck is going on there that it's bizarre you're running that jupiter notebook locally though as a web server correct <laughs> this is where it gets really weird on the pink fpga there's um an ethernet port a like some usb host ports an hdmi in an hdmi out a bunch of io um the ethernet port so the pink fpga actually runs linux it's running a fairly, fairly neat, recent kernel too okay. so it's actually running the jupiter notebooks locally to the fpga not on the system you're developing on Wow, okay. Yeah, it's really weird. And that's not normal FPGA dev. Normal FPGA dev doesn't look anything like that. But that's sort of the thing here is the method of development can change really wildly based on what you're doing. That still has some issues, though, namely in the same issue the Mojo FPGA had, mind you, not to the same extent, of code I write there wouldn't really work in a commercial product because I'd have to ship the whole pink image with my device, and the pink image is a full Linux distro. And then you need all the storage for that compared to just, you know, the far less storage you need for real-time OS just running on that ARM core. That's bare bones. Interesting. Because you wouldn't really want to ship a commercial product that's running a Jupyter notebook. Right. It, it doesn't make sense. So there, there's a lot of really weird intricacies here. At the same time, I think it makes sense to learn on something like that. It also abstracts away some of the FPGA design, though. So... There's a lot of ins and outs to it where what do you want to learn? If, if you're wanting to learn how to build that software processor, then there's something to be said for doing it all in raw VHDL and kind of learning to hate yourself. <laughs> <laughs> for reference here, the class I took uh, with that, the instructor was absolute trash and like it did not go well. I, so the instructor is a great guy, but horrible as an instructor. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the name of the game for that class. That class was taking 40 hours a week for homework for everybody in that class, even though it was a three credit hour class. Wow. That's, that's a lot of homework. Yeah. So that, I'm, I'm, that should describe to you why that class was that bad and why I kind of hate doing raw VHDL dev, which I don't want to hate it, but I sort of do now because of that, because I do think it's absolutely incredible. You can yeah. set up things that are so high speed. That's just awesome. But designing it just sucks. Um, so then the question is, okay, what embedded system do you really target with and what what do you work with? And I think that's sort of the more important topic here is you have all these tool chains. You could work with uh, uh, Verilog or Quartus, depending on which uh, FPGA you go for, if it's a Xilinx or Intel Altera chip. Uh, you could end up in the Arduino ID if you're using uh, an AVR. Um, you could end up with still technically the Arduino ID or platform IO or whatever you want to work with. Uh, if you're using um, ESP32 or ESP8266, there's the new STM32 boards that give you a good ground between those, but are a pain to get set up because you need the blue pill programmer. There's all this stuff going on, and I can spout all that out, and my guess is only about half of that actually made sense. <laughs> I mean, Well, I have a better grasp than most, only because I've been you know, generally looking at it, but yeah, it's it's 
it's so confusing for somebody like me trying to get into it because it's like, okay, there's yeah, four I, billion I, dev boards, right? And I, I have to start looking at, okay, what do I need for peripherals? What do I need for I/O? And mm-hmm. I kind of go that way, I guess, to figure out what where I need to go for the tool chain. And so the biggest problem here is then how do I get something where it's consistent to develop in? Because learning 52 different ways to develop and 52 different languages with a thousand different libraries, it's just, it's insane. So I I honestly don't really know a solution, but I do know that it makes sense to not just use the default one on everything you look at. When working with the uh, Arduino programming, doing it through the Arduino IDE sucks. It, it just, quite frankly, you're not going to get done what you want to get done. Uh, if you're running Linux and installing AVR Dude and um, AVA Rice, Ava Rice, don't I pronounce it, um, which gives you the debugging stuff and all that stuff, and getting an ISP for like $7 off eBay, you can have a really nice setup that even gets around the Arduino bootloader and makes your entire thing like so you have more flash available to you. Um, and doing that can give you a better tool chain because now you can literally use whatever text editor you want, upload, it, upload your code to the board however you want, you get more fine control. At the same time, it's no longer the point and click that the Arduino IDE was. So it's a huge question of how much do you want to learn out of it and to what extent are the tools getting in your way? I think for a lot of this embedded stuff, it, for most programming, whether it be Python, C, whatever, if you're targeting an x86 architecture and you're just either um, compiling for it for C or just running it real time like Python or normal interpreted languages, your dev environment really doesn't matter. You can develop a notepad if you feel like it. Please don't, but you can. But on this other stuff where you're kind of t- forced into different things, there's so many different ways to go about it that I think it makes sense to take the time to learn a way that's fast and comfortable for you. So at the end of the day, the tool chain really just depends on what's good for you. If you use Vim and know how to use it well, then you can quite easily set up stuff for that, put stuff in your VimRC to execute commands, to upload your board to upload your code to the board using um, AVR Dude. It's not that bad. You can literally turn Vim into an IDE. Is it what everybody's going to want to do? No, because most people can't exit Vim. Yeah, and I guess that kind of, that's a really good good way of looking at it because, you know, it's what are these tools really doing? They're just giving you access to the board. So, you know, you, if you spend time setting up your tool chain the way you want it, it's going to make it that much easier to work in. What sucks is there's no easy way to learn these tools, though. The documentation on a lot of them is just awful. Yeah. Uh, there was a story the other day, and like I think there's been some updates to it, so I don't really want to misrepresent the story. But where Xilinx uh, sued somebody because they provided uh, tutorials on how to use their software. And like, that seems strange. I just want to help. Because they were offering their own video tutorials and they're like, you're competing with us. But it's like, it's free software and it's, don't you want to sell your product more than you want to sell your tutorials? The more, the more information people can get out there about stuff like that, the better off the the entire whole of the community is, is. Because why, why hoard it? Why be like, we're going to be the only source? If if I build something and somebody goes, that's great. Here's how I did it better. I should learn from them. You know, Creative Commons, all that stuff is great for that. But it's like, are, are we really going to sit there and as a as a maker community go, no, you can't send that out. You, you know, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna d- uh, do a copyright notice on you on YouTube because you're doing the same thing I am. Yeah, and so what's even more interesting is there's a. Kind of sizable debate, but to me, I don't think it really should be a debate. I think it's kind of an answered question of whether or not this was uh, fair use because it was educational in nature. And that's kind of an interesting question because most of the information he got would have been from copyrighted documents from Xilinx, but it's still educational. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of an issue. Personally, I think that it makes sense to just charge more for your hardware and then provide your software completely unlocked to anybody. Because it seems sort of ridiculous to charge for the hardware and then charge for the software to use it. It used to be that for some of these FPGA toolkits, you'd have to pay for the FPGA and then literally there wasn't any free software. All of the software was paid. Well, it, let, let me t- say this looking from a maker's perspective because there's a kind of a weird parallel you can draw between this and things like Fusion 360 and CAD software. And this is my opinion. Charge for the hardware. Charge for the hardware. Make the software free make this off make the information out there get the information out there for free the reason you do that at least from my perspective is if i'm designing a product and knock on wood if i design something that goes public i don't mind spending the money to license the software license Mm -hmm. i'm going to be much more apt to go to something that i can go okay here's 
here's a free book to go learn this. If I can sit down and say I can study this and figure out if it's just what I need, rather than going to pay for the information beforehand. The cool mm-hmm. part for me is like Fusion 360. It's my go-to when I do CNC work and I could do 3D design because it's free. As a hobbyist, I can make up to $100,000 a year, I believe, before I have to start paying for the software. That's awesome. Yep. And it does so much. So it's my first go-to suggestion. And if I ever dealt with this, you know, if I ever get lucky enough to deal with it and need to, if I'm making more than $100,000 a year, I'm gladly pay for it because I've learned it. And I think more people and more companies that take that approach from it, the better off we'll be. And at the end of the day, it just makes sense from a business perspective. It's really easy to pirate software. Like doing serial cracks is like keygen cracks is pretty simple. I mean, I have a Rigel, I'm Rigel uh, DS1054Z. And mm-hmm. this scope was a $300 scope that runs at like 50 megahertz and kind of has a lot of features disabled. Where you go online, you run it through keygen and ta-da, you have every feature you could possibly dream of. It's a hundred megahertz scope. It's four channel. It's it's just amazing. And it's like even your hardware. You like why would you lock that stuff down? Make me pay for physical items. Don't make me pay for software, guys. Yeah. The point five on that scope. There's a the joke behind it is that's the educational discount because they know everyone's doing it, but mm-hmm. people are then buying their scope and then they u- learn their scope and when they go out to industry they want to use that scope with uh, the place that they work. Mm-hmm. And then the places they work will actually pay for it. Right, because they don't want to get caught with their pants down when it comes to licensing. Yep, and it, it works. I have to give them credit. Yeah. I don't know why they don't just sell it as like an educational discount for real. That way I don't have to have illegal software in my house. But, oh well. Well, it's like I bought a Wacom, right? I bought a Wacom tablet years ago, and it's like, it's the same hardware. There's an educational version that says, oh, you can't use it for commercial. And then there's a commercial version. Yeah. Uh, Weird, you know? My pink FPJ is actually an educational discount version, but at the same time, I have no intention of doing anything commercial with it anyway. So I'd sort of like to go into like how to get started and learn this stuff to begin with. That's a great, great point, you know, because it's it's different from when I started. Mm-hmm. I remember as a kid going to the going to Best Buy when you can actually do this at Best Buy. I bought C, uh, Visual C plus plus six on the shelf at Best Buy. Oh my god! I know, and you know what I did with it. <laughs> I came home, I installed it on my computer, I pulled out these big posters that showed all the various cha- uh, various uh, tooled lists and commands and stuff you could do. I designed some interfaces, and I'm like, ah, I'm winning way over my head. Mm-hmm. That's all I did with Visual C++ 6. I think I still have it around here somewhere. That actually brings up an interesting point. There's two general camps on how to get started with the programming side, at least. And the two camps are Python versus C. Which one do you start with? What's your opinion? My opinion, so I'm actually going to throw a different one out there. I like, I've played with Scratch a little bit. For those that don't know, Scratch is a visual programming language. Um, The reason I I like Scratch is because it really gives a good visual indication of what's going on in a program. I actually got my start in programming with uh, Lego Mindstorms, and it's actually really similar to the way Scratch designs it. That being said, if if you gave me a choice between the two, I personally go with Python only because for what I'm doing with it, it makes a little bit more sense. It's a little easier to get into, in my opinion. So I've heard the argument. The reason why people argue C, at least, is the clear reason of it. It forces you to understand what's going on at the hardware level, whereas Python, you don't care. And it, learning C, at least, if you're planning to do anything that's at all low down, you sort of have to know it at the end of the day anyway, and it mm-hmm. at least introduces it to you early. But I also understand the idea of you're learning programming at first, let's learn just programming. On the note of Scratch, though, I think it makes sense maybe for the first like hour to toy with it to get an idea of what you're like, how control flow works and loops. Yeah. But then after that, I would immediately go to Python. I wouldn't say anything like an hour of just here's a nice visual representation. Now let's move to textual. Oh, yeah. I would suggest Scratch to people who just are interested and curious about programming, but not necessarily like, oh my God, I need to learn this to do X, Y, and Z with my computer. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a really good visual introduction. That being said, I can totally understand the reasoning behind C and it's something that um, I get into myself. And there, there's a whole discussion there about jumping into C++ and C development from a Python perspective. But for me, it's I, I really liked learning the flows, the structure. To me, it felt like I can understand programming the iterating over loops all the stuff that makes up normal programming a lot easier without having to worry about allocating memory and Mm -hmm. copying pointers and stuff and then i can focus on that when i jumped into c and you can more immediately see when something goes wrong if in c you have a stack overflow you might be spending three hours to figure out why 
Right. <laughs> Did I recursively call something too many times? What happened? Yeah, and that's a big thing between interpreted and compiled languages. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, and I'm not going to say Python's interpretation always works beautifully either. You can have an issue in Python where uh, if it's actually a script and you're not just line by lining something, where um, it will crash at a different point each time. And it can be hard to figure out which line exactly is causing the issue because it's it's actually executing some lines in parallel and doing some weird stuff in the background to make things a little bit faster. Yeah. But that's just, that is what it is. And if nothing else, you can still use a Python debugger and step-by-step through. I think on the note of learning, though, that that's another thing is I think a lot of people get scared of the more advanced tools. In the beginning, they start out with something like uh, either an integrated ID if they're learning C, like code blocks or Eclipse or something like that. And then they never learn how to use GCC and learn what the flags mean and learn what like a linked object is or anything like that. Or then in the Python world, I think they get used to just like doing all their development uh, raw in a text editor than just running it through uh, Python ex- like executable and saying Merry Christmas. And then they never learn what a debugger is. And I'm not going to claim that the Python debuggers really serve much of a purpose because it's a Python debugger. But then on the C end, you have a lot of people who will never touch GDB because it's GDB. And I, I can't blame them. Like the, the interface on it's totally crap, but it's still an issue. Yeah. So my coming back to that question again, I my recommendation is Python. But do you think Python is the right place to start, or do you recommend people start and see? I recommend Python. Just if you, if you, what's the book? Um, automating the simple or automating the hard stuff in in Python. Let me look that up real quick. There's a really good book that one of my friends is reading right now. That mm-hmm. if you if you want to learn programming to make your job easier, and you're looking at automating stuff that is where i would go okay i'm a strong believer that for learning anything that it makes sense to have an actual end goal in mind versus just like doing pointless crap like hello world writing a hello world doesn't teach me anything in my opinion like it's utterly worthless it's just to like make show that the language functions and be sure that my install works sure past that i'm officially bored immediately so my question on that then would be Assuming Python is a good language to start, because I'm used to the lower level stuff and I don't really work in the higher level, where would you recommend people start as like a first project? I would look at, and this is anything I do when I program, I look for the hardest thing to do. So let me give you an example of, um, I never, unfortunately, I never program enough to really get into it and like, okay, I'm, I'm always comfortable with my language. I have to kind of go back and learn some stuff to begin with. I had, mm-hmm. a, I had a application that I wrote for a work job where it was nothing more than drawing a grid using um, what amounted to JSON for on app on Google Maps. And mm-hmm. so what I did is I figured out what the hardest thing was. So I, I always break down problems because I'm a troubleshooter by nature. I always break down problems to the smallest unit. And I then try to solve that problem. I go into the code. I'm like, okay, in this case, I think I want to I wanted to take GPS coordinates and figure out what 2,000 feet in one direction and 3,000 feet in the other direction are. I found a formula that worked for what I was trying to do. I programmed a little script to do that that would spit out the four points of a square uh, that could put, in, put into Google Maps. And that's mm-hmm. what I always say is like find something, find a problem that you can you can look at. It has to be, you, you can't say like, well, I want to, here's a, a, a big thing. It's like, okay, I have a spreadsheet and I want to take all that data and correlate it with a website. You know, you're not going to be able to look at Google and say, "Okay, do that." What? Look at what you need to do first. I would, I mm-hmm. would say, look at how you read that Excel document that's uh, comma separated into Python. Figure out how to do that, and then build from there. So, kind of work from a small single problem, and then start adding on to it. So, the same way that functional programming works, anyway. You know, work on small, small things, and then turn them into the bigger picture, anyway. Yeah. And um, the book I was talking about was automate the boring stuff with Python. It's a uh, no okay. no starch press book. I love No Starch Press. I have um, Hacking the Art of Exploitation by John Erickson. Yes. And that book is, it jumps into assembly literally in the second chapter. Yeah, but... and I was reading that because you suggested it to me, and it is a great book. I mean, uh, there's a lot of No Starch Press books that are just awesome. So, again, we're not being sponsored by them or anything, but just, I, I tend to, if, if I see them as a, a uh, someone who's publishing a book, I tend to believe it, you know, put some more faith into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was thinking about this as you were talking, I think for a first project recommendation for me, if you are looking at the lower, doing lower level stuff, doing stuff in hardware or like playing with memory registers, blah, 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 blah. One of the first projects I did that fully personal that I think taught me a lot was uh, taking an Arduino, set it to use sort of your own protocol for lack of a better word and have it do something in the real world. So be it just flash an LED or something upon getting some input that has some sort of data structure to it. So like it 
takes eight bits in and then based on those eight bits sets some lights to a different color or something and then set up a python program or any language or program you want locally in your computer to send that information down serial to the arduino and i think that teaches you the hardware development end and the um, software development end and it gives you both sides of the picture which is nice uh for me it was i took a um uh, a radiation meter, an old civil defense radiation meter, stripped out the guts, hooked up my Arduino, and then made it send my processor and CPU usage, uh, my processor and RAM usage to the uh, radiation meter displayed on the actual meter. And I wrote the driver side in Python and the firmware side in normal Arduino. That's a really interesting project. I like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try that. That's a great, that's a great thing. It's, you need something not, not something really hard and complex you need to be able to break a problem down to something you can Google. And and like when you say that, my first thought is, okay, so I'm going to read input off an IO off an Arduino. How do I do that? How do I, how do I send data over a serial port from Python? Those are the kind of things you need to be able to learn to Google and search and read the information. If you can't break your problem down into small stuff like that, you're not going to have a fun time. And what's really cool is it's a project, and I think projects that are like this, I'm not necessarily advocating for that particular project, especially because I don't want to see a bunch of old radiation meters destroyed. But I think projects like this where it can be easily expanded is cool. So for mine, it, at least at first, it was only output, but then it had a knob in the middle, which I ended up making it so I could do analog read and then send some data back to the computer. I actually never ended up using that, but I did integrate it into the Python program. It just never was set to trigger anything client-side. Oh, well. But then more interestingly is it forced me to learn uh, OS-specific development, which is something I kind of had dreaded before. It turns out that there is no standard on how serial works. The <laughs> serial end is reasonable, and the libraries for it all reasonable, but actually accessing the ports is kind of a pain, because in Linux, it's like slash dev slash TTY USB 0 or ACM 1 or whatever. In Windows, it's a COM port. Yeah. Well, that gets more interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, then it gets even more fun because I had multiple Arduinos hooked up to my system because I also had using a very similar project where I actually copy and pasted half the code. I had another Arduino that uh, had arcade buttons hooked up to it in, in a table that I could use the arcade buttons to control things on my computer. Mm -hmm. uh, but both of them were off-brand Arduinos which with uh, CH340 uh, USB chips. That meant they both identified to the system as the same thing. Windows was smart enough to assign them two different COM ports, and Linux was smart enough to give them both different things. But it because they both showed up as the same product ID from the same vendor, it would be random on which one assigned what. So oh, nice. on one reboot, it might be COM4 and 5, and the other one, it might be 5 and 4. Like, it might reverse which device got which ID. That's useful. How do you solve that problem? How do you solve the problem of which OS gets which stuff? There's so many weird intricacies there. I ended up just making it send an identifier uh, once every few minutes about which device was which, which is... A super simple thing to do. Mind you, I could have gone through and reprogrammed the CH340 and like added stuff to it or in Linux, um, do some special stuff to make sure that it's based on the actual physical USB port it's plugged into. But that wouldn't have worked class cross platform and I didn't really feel like doing that. So the simple just th through serial send an identifier every now and then work. And see, that's a really interesting thing because I think my approach of the same problem would have been looking at, you know, what other identifiers are there? Is there something like a MAC address? Is there something like how would you solve that problem at scale? Not that you're you're gonna talk about scale, but though when I try to look <laughs> I'm at really stuff enjoying the idea of somebody with forty off brand Arduino's hooked into one computer. Well. <laughs> That's the next big thing for crypto mining, man. Um, but <laughs> but that's my... Coin. When I'm looking at solutions, and one thing I have a big problem with is I don't always look for the easiest solution. I look for the best solution. I want I want the solution that is the one that's going to be like, okay, this is the way that the industry would do it. This is the this is the fastest. This is the the quote unquote best. While you're you're sitting there going, okay, well, I'll just send an identifier saying if I see this this ID that I know it, this this is the device. I'm thinking, well, what can we do to, what would be the permanent solution if I was an industry to fix this problem? So it's really interesting. And that's something I think you, you know, you can help with is get in, get on, if you're a furry and you're listening to this podcast, you know, find the groups that talk about that in Telegram or Discord. If you're not, you know, find the groups on Telegram or Discord or whatever platform you like that you can go out there and ask questions and ping off people and say, hey, I'm running to this thing and how would you fix it? And it's really important to find the groups that have are at the same level of you are. Uh, if you sit there and try to ask things on like Stack Overflow, you're not going to have a good time because Stack Overflow is Stack Overflow. It's a, uh, mm -hmm. I would say it's pretentious. And you'll get a lot of answers that are like, well, why don't you just do the simple solution? And sometimes it's like, because I want to do it right. Correct. 
and other times it's because you have this long backstory to it. You didn't really feel like including it in your post because it's not super relevant. You're asking a question. You're not expecting an answer that says this is the wrong question. Yeah. <laughs> and you're gonna, or you're going to get your, your post closed down for being this is very specific to your situation. You know, this is not general enough. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's all lose lose on that. But go, going back to the original thing of like, how, how do you learn programming with, with all this stuff in mind, though? I, I think that there's a lot to be said for looking for a problem that needs solved because if you just for, for your problem with, with the GPS stuff, I, I don't know if I'm understanding correctly. Like what was the motivation behind doing that? Okay. So actually really interesting. So the motivation behind doing that is I, um, when I, I used to work as a field tech and mm-hmm. a quick backstory for the people that have never been in that world. Um, we have a bunch of cable plant out there in the world. The cable plant is documented in things called prints. What prints are, basically are big CAD files. They are CAD files in this case that were about 2,000 to 3,000 or 3,000 feet in one direction, 2,000 feet in a, uh, it was 3,000 feet east-west, 2,000 feet north-south. And that was, it would be a numbered print and they they went, all the prints in the same column would start with the same numbers and the like column, it was column and row designated with four numbers. And what made this kind of what I want to do is I had this big, I want to say like four foot, five foot wide map on my desk next to me that had all these print numbers on a map of where I worked at. And I'm like, well, this is great because Mm -hmm. I can go turn, find the address, find the print number real easily. The problem was this print didn't have any street names on it. So if you weren't familiar with the streets, you wouldn't know where to look. So I was finding this, I was basically going from one computer going, okay, I type an address, figure out what street it is. Okay. The closest cross street is this. It kind of looks like this on the map. Turn to my map, try to find it, take that print number, put it into this a program to find the print on the the our uh, storage site, and then pull the print up. I'm like, this is stupid. And plus, if I'm in the mm-hmm. field, if I'm out if I'm out on a job and I need to pull a print up, I have to sit there and guess, or I have to look at the CAD version of this on a CAD view or on a screen. I'm like, this is stupid. Google Maps has this thing where I can put data on top of Google Maps using um Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, I want to say GeoJSON, I want to say. It's been a couple of years since I played with this. It might yeah. have changed since then too. God knows it's right, it's five cool. minutes. But I was like, this is, this is the solution. <laughs> I basically, my, my goal and what I got done was I was able to find a single point on a map. If I, I could find a cross street or a known GPS location, I, I basically created this so I could put in the amount of rows and columns I needed to output. I could find any XY coordinate on the map. It was an upper left corner of a given map section. And then I put all that data in and it generated the GeoJSON file that I loaded up to a web server. And then it, what it outputted was a map with the squares on it. You could click on square and take you to the link to that file. That's nice. Yeah, it was great. And it it saved me maybe like five or 10 minutes given print. You know, maybe mm-hmm. as, as, it might be as little as 30 or 40 seconds if I'm, if I'm in certain situations. But it's like, okay, well, I'm not having to pull this up and pull that up and wait on this. It's boom, right there in Google Maps. And that's yeah. the kind of things that certain applications will work. And that what really worked well for me is I wasn't running the Python constantly. It generated the GeoJSON file and then just I uploaded that to a server. It, so I didn't really care too much about yeah, processing not... time, even though it wasn't that long. It was only, I think, a minute and a half, two minutes to generate the stuff it needed. And I, I, on the note of looking for like problems to solve, I think there's two big points on that. That One of them, I'm not trying to be rude here when I say like you're older, so I think it's less relevant, is looking for ways to be in, not entirely not relevant, is looking for ways to save yeah. money and be cheap. If, if you see a product that you really want, you're like, wow, that is $600. Nope. Yeah. Uh, you can look at it and be like, huh. I can build that for 30 bucks. Well, that's also a big part of the maker movement <laughs> and, too. Yeah, but at, at the same time, like I think that's a good way of doing things. And if you look at a project and you're like, okay, there's a 25% chance this will work. It's going to cost me 25 bucks to try versus $600 for something I know that'll work. It suddenly makes sense to try. Even if you only get one out of every quarter of those, only get one fourth of the things you try that work, you're still positive money in the end. And then you probably have leftover hardware each time yeah. you're slowly building up. It makes sense to do it on the other end of that for the people who are more adult and have jobs and, you know, poor suckers. <laughs> Your job is boring and crappy and you have something that's monotonous to do. That's sort of the general gist of like things you can yeah. automate and program. If it if it's something boring and monotonous, you can probably get code yeah. to do it. And it's getting progressively easier to make code do things like that, especially with like TensorFlow and stuff where not any person can write AI code, but it's not horrible to do. So you can get dang near anything you want automated now. So if you have a job, automate it. Now, don't kick yourself out of a job either, but 
you know, be aware that you might be able to, you know, play on Facebook. If well, you also you're learning work. a new skill set. And one thing I want to point out is a couple resources that popped in my mind as we're sitting here talking about this. There are people that learn in a more formal environment. If you want to learn as a sit down course of here's, here is your hello world. Here is how loops work. There's a website called edX. It's edX.org, I want to say. And this is college level courses that are available online. A bunch of schools that are associated with them. M- MIT, Harvard, Berkeley, University of Texas, uh, Hong Kong, Polytech, uh, University of uh, British Columbia. And these are free courses online that you can actually get certificates for if you choose to go through that. And there's a lot of great introduction, introductory program courses. Harvard has a, a really, it's a really common course that I think a lot of people have to take through Harvard called CS50. And that is a, mm-hmm. a really good introduction to course if you like the formal environment. If you're in the iTunes, I, iOS platform, uh, there is uh, iTunes U. Same thing, same sort of idea. They have a great introduction to like iOS programming from Stanford, a really good introduction to how it all works. So look for resources like that. I know the users can't see my face right now, but you mentioned iOS. So I'm like, you know, kind of snickering. And, well, you know, you're going to hate what I'm going to say next. Then. At that. Um, I'm sorry. <sighs> so there also is iOS playgrounds. And it sounds funny, but Playgrounds is their way to teach people Swift, and they do it through cartoons. And it sounds silly to say that, but it it works. It's a visual representation of structure and programming and looping by moving a little guy around a map, and it gets fairly advanced. And I've actually always been a fan of that type of learning to program, and actually I'm a huge fan of Dataflow represented programming. Uh, We're actually going to turn into this conversation on accident when we talk about modular synthesis. Uh, in a few minutes. But yeah, no, I think a lot of audio systems for programming and um, shader systems for doing visual stuff for like video game making use these modules where you you know connect wires from one piece to another. And it it's it is still programming. It just doesn't really look like it. Right. And so like stuff like that, where it's the same as like Swift Playgrounds, where you're doing something visually where it's, it's interactive and you can tell what's going on. That's a really mm-hmm. good way to learn. And it all depends on how you learn, too. Mm hmm. I mean, there are some people who learn best by just staring at the textbook and, you know, typing code and figuring More out how it works. More those people. I can't Not do me, it. but nope. <laughs> and that, that's one of the issues why I struggle a little bit with college. I, For the most part, most of my classes I'm really advanced in, but some of the more formal aspects of it I really struggle with because I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> it's a struggle forcing that motivation when there isn't any is, is a rough time like when somebody tells you to write a hello world for a program that you can comfortably program in any day of the week but why and their answer is because gpa and you're like but why it's only gonna matter when you get your first job and no one's gonna look at it ever again <laughs> even then if they don't really care if you can write a hello world in any language. no it's all about the algorithms and, and um, stuff you can put on, on a whiteboard but this is a whole conversation from pr- last week the last episode, yeah. Again, it, it's, you know, how you learn is, is relevant. And like this, this could easily turn into the education talk again. But I, I think there's a lot of ways to learn. I think the best method is legitimately just find projects that interest you that serve an actual impact yeah. in your life. I think for a lot of formal education, you're not going to find those. Whereas I think finding cool projects that you're going to get some enjoyment out of are going to save you money, are going to save you time. Those are the types of things that will actually force you to learn because when you're just learning because you're being forced to learn, you don't learn. When you're learning because you actually care, exactly, you learn. That's one of the reasons I really like um, all the weird Arduino projects I've made is because either they're saving me time, they're saving me money, or I'm just thoroughly enjoying myself. Like the floppy drive system was the uh, thoroughly, like just having fun with it. The uh, accelerometer in my guitar was actually saving me money because I'd looked at other systems I could attach on. And A, they weren't as integrated, so they actually weren't as nice. And B, they were expensive, so saving money on that. Or then saving time. I can't even tell you how many scripts I've written that just automate some co- some development uh, flow that just make things way faster. Or just using Linux in general, I have stuff set up so I macros to navigate around the entire OS that just makes it so everything is keyboard-based yeah. and quick. And that's, that's what's important. you got to find something that works for you. I'm not going to claim that the same stuff that works for me is going to work for anybody else either. Like, I use i3WM on Linux, which is tiling and, like, uh, it's... I think it's good looking, but it's good looking in its own minimal way. It's bare bones. It's all keyboard based. There's going to be some people who look at it and go, why would you use something that looks like it's from 1984? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, because I like it. It's quick and fast for me, but it's not what everybody's going to want to use. If you're used to Windows where Windows can be, you know, you can click and drag a window around the screen. I3 is going to drive you nuts. Um, did you want to move into uh, modular synthesis? And well, yeah. um, I mean, you mentioned modular, like modular synthesis, and that's something that I don't have a lot of experience with. So I'm kind of curious to hear, you know, you talk about moving wires and stuff on the screen. It sounds really cool, but like, talk about it, you know, tell me about it. 
Okay, so um, for a normal modular synth, it wouldn't be anything on a screen because it's entirely analog usually. I mean, you could have some digital components, but the end of the idea, the idea is the eh, end of the day idea is that you can plug a bunch of different wires to feed different things into different elements. Uh, you have like an you could do the bare bones simple of feed an oscillator into a speaker to value of a sine wave. Okay. Uh, you can t attach it to a control voltage source to get it so that you can modulate the frequency based on the keys on a piano. And ta-da, you now have an oscillator that's hooked up to a keyboard. Not really that interesting because you have no impact to it when you hit each key. Hook it up to an attack dec decay sustain release module. And ta-da, you now have it so it kind of has some oomph to it. You can keep adding things in and then you can repatch things to hook things up in non-obvious ways, like feed the audio back out to control the gain or something so that the higher pitch notes are louder than the lower pitch notes or something stupid like that. You can rewire it however mm -hmm. you want. But that's for the physical systems and those physical systems cost an insane amount of money. Just the simple oscillator module can cost you a few hundred bucks. Oh my god. <laughs> and the rack to store these things in is again, you know, probably cost you a few hundred dollars. Nobody wants to pay that. Uh thankfully the stuff is starting to come down. Like uh Behringer just released their uh Neutron, which is a semi-modular synth, which is only three hundred dollars. It can has a good chunk of stuff built into it. Enough that you can actually make some really cool sounds and it allows you to repatch wires really nicely. But I'm cheap, and that's not really my thing. So <laughs> not only am I cheap, but I'm also a college student, so I don't have money to not be. So there's this program called VCV Rack, which I think it's actually just called Rack, and it's by VCV, but they've changed the name like three times around how they want you to say that. Whatever. If you just search VCV Rack, you'll find it. Um, it allows you to use virtual modules where a lot of them are actually modeled after the real modules, and you can wire these up and set them up yourself. And with setting these up, you can do some really interesting things. If you have a nice audio interface, you can actually use real oscillators and real hardware and put those back in. So with that recently, I've been working on two ends of it. You can put in real sound and then take real sound back out, which is real sound, I suppose, isn't the best way of phrasing that. You can take an actual analog signal and put it into your computer, you know, through a mic in and then through a line out, actually take the actual analog signal and put it to speakers. And you could mix and match that any way you want. Uh, the more ins and outs you have, the more complex systems you can set up. And you can also take MIDI in and then the system supports a MIDI to control voltage thing. And that's relevant to the entire way modular sense to work in that when you press a key, that key generates a specific voltage. And that voltage is sort of an agreed upon standard to mean that that note. So the lower end notes are low, uh, the lower notes like a C2 would be almost no voltage, whereas a C6 would be a higher voltage. And then the voltages in between gives you each note. And then that's an agreed upon standard. So you can make the oscillators play the, the right frequency. Um, but so then you can do a MIDI to CV conversion in the software. And that CV isn't a real CV. It's not a real voltage, but it's a virtual wire where you can start to see how things work. And so then you can hook up your MIDI gear to it and do things. So th what this means is you can build real sense and build real MIDI gear and play and plug it into your system and then alternate between software and hardware to pay less for it. That's that's insane. That's interesting. How would you learn that? Would you start playing with it? That's what I did at first. I started to get an idea of how things work. And some of it I just intuitively knew because if you hook an oscillator to a speaker, just like if you hook a frequency generator for learning electronics to any to an LED, you're going to get, you know, you can see that frequency. Well, if you hook that up to a speaker, you're going to hear that frequency. So an oscillator is a frequency generator and ta-da, you can sort of make those correlations in your head, assuming you have some experience. But if you don't have any experience, you can, of course, watch tutorials on YouTube. But my way I actually learned it was to look at real modular synth systems, look at the way they were wired, and then try to build the exact same thing in VCV rack. There's only a list of maybe 10 or 12 core components that you're really going to use. You're going to have the audio ins and outs, which like, duh, you need to get audio to your speaker. And you, if you have audio coming in from something like a microphone, you need to get access to that. You have oscillators. You have what I mentioned before, the ADSR uh, modules for attack, decay, sustain, release, which makes it so when you hit a key, determines how long it takes for that note to fully get its volume, how long it holds that volume, and how long it takes to release it. Then you have the things that make it actually follow that curve. It's really weird. That's actually generated by its own oscillator. It's kind of a strange, weird mess. Uh, then you have filters, so low-pass filter, high-pass filter. You can usually have some sort of gain, which is basically just done by an amplifier that clips in software. But going through all these components, you're hopefully seeing that none of these are really complex things to build in real life. Building an oscillator, you can make a 555 timer oscillator in a few minutes, or by clipping the middle pin on an MPN uh, transistor, assuming it's the right one, you can make a uh, falling av avalanche system where, ta-da, you have just a nice sawtooth and literally like five components. Once you start building that stuff, you can actually build your own analog sense and plug them into this and then do the power processing for effects there or set up the attacks, the case sustain, whatever, and do it in there. It's insane. But, so the way I learned the stuff in the first place is actually 
I mentioned that Barrier Neutron, I was looking at buying that recently. And this isn't the first time I've learned modular synthesis, but it's definitely been a long time since I've worked with it. So I was looking at how that one was set up, and I just sort of looked at how the modulars were positioned on the actual layout of the board, and then kind of made guesses about the ways they were wired, and then started just wiring it up until I had something that looked close to the way they had theirs. And then you can start adding modules that like you want. So if you want to add a delay, which I don't think this had built into it, add it in wherever you want and see how it sounds, where it's in there. And if it doesn't work, you rewire it. And because you're working on software, you don't have to worry about blowing anything up. Interesting. Whereas if you're working with hardware, it's really easy to either overload a voltage. So like if you use stacking cables, it's easy to put two volts on something that really doesn't want more volt mm -hmm. and stuff like that, where you could actually blow stuff. Whereas in software, the worst you're going to do is the software will tell you, eh, no. And it, so uh, you said VCV rack, right? Yep, VCV rack. And what's cool is almost all the modules for it are free and the um, host thing, VCV rack, is also free. Interesting. I'll have to play with that some because that it's audio is one of those things that I've always kind of had a weird fascination with that I'm, I I can't carry a tune. I can't sing and I can't make stuff sound good. I can't. I don't have a. I also can't. To be fair, I can't sing at all either. But I do play a few instruments. Yeah, I I used to play trombone in high school. It's been a long time and it's uh, not worth mentioning again. I just can't keep. Up I mean, beat. you were playing a wind instrument, so like that kind of makes sense that it wasn't amazing. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm saying wind is really hard to play. Yeah. I mean, legitimately, I don't know anybody who can actually play wind wind well unless it's a saxophone, and that's because it's a saxophone. Everything sounds good on a saxophone. There's a Bill Clinton joke sitting here. I'm not going to make it, but it's sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> God. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> but um no so like with vc virac you can do some inter interesting stuff so like i've been trying to set up something where i can like modulate my uh guitar signal in and like uh get it so that my guitar sort of sounds like a synth which just normally wouldn't be super easy to do that's uh, interesting and you can just do a lot of stuff with it and what's cool is you don't really realize it but as you're working with this stuff you're actually learning a lot about electronics because if you hook up a low pass filter to something well that's not a complex thing to build like that's just a capacitor and a resistor in a real life circuit and if you build a system you really like i'm not gonna say it's cheap or easy to do because depending on what you have in there it might be really complicated like if you have a sample and hold module that's going to be hard to build in real life but if it's just an oscillator to an adsr to an output like you're not talking about something that's insanely complicated to build in real life you could relatively easily make that on your own uh, circuit board and start playing playing with it so that's really cool learn electronics with it without meaning to it doesn't really tell you how those things work but if you just look up how to make sawtooth oscillator it's usually not that bad i'm mm -hmm. not going to say it's going to sound good but you can make something that's reasonable i mean that's the crazy part to me is like you know we're sitting here and all audio is is voltage through a speaker well within reason what's really crazy is that you can do this stuff for free and that, that it's so well emulated because you're simulating analog circuits and doing weird, crazy things, twisting knobs, playing with virtual wires, and it sounds pretty dang close to the real circuits. It's not perfect, but does it have to be? Not once free. Yeah, you know. It's good for for practice. I'm not going to advocate everybody out there and buy a modular synth, but you can do some really cool stuff with them, even for like electronic stuff, and you can mod them incredibly. It's one of the reasons I got into audio in the first place is because I really was into electronics, and I was like, huh, I'm looking at these speakers, and I'm like, uh, this one has weird issues where it's, this amplifier has a weird issue where it's letting through a bunch of like high-frequency noise. Let's just filter that crap out. But oh, you built a filter for nothing. Why not just build the same thing in what? In hardware for working with making music and then make it so it's you, you can twist a knob and set, set the filter to modulate hell you can do some pretty cool stuff with that pretty quick yeah i don't do you have any questions on that stuff you said you just kind of got into a play with it and try to emulate since you've seen before what's what's a good starting point like besides going to vcv is there like is there a good synth to like try to emulate honestly the barrier neutron was a good one just because it's semi-modular and you can actually get a good picture of it if you just look up modular synth you'll usually see these huge cabinets that are like six foot by six foot totally stuffed with modules and you would really easily be able to tell what's doing what because there's wires running all over the place and you can't even visually follow them mm -hmm. literally hundreds of wires it's, it's crazy but if you just look how simple synth works then you can just add one piece at a time and just keep adding things back in so you start with the oscillator to the output then you put it through an envelope generator the adsr generator and the adsr follower and a MIDI keyboard so that's the only stage you really have to add three modules at once and then you get that to follow an envelope and then from there you could add reverb distortion sample and hold you could do whatever you want just keep adding things in you can add an L LFO, which is a low frequency oscillator to slowly sweep something back and forth between two settings, things like that. And it's once you start get, get the hang of what these things really mean, it's pretty simple. Interesting. It's something I have to play with because it's I'm curious about it now. Not that I'm ever going to make any music, but I'll make interesting noises. And what's interesting is you can, depending on what you're working with, and like there's a lot to be said for that, you could actually use it as a decent way to generate frequencies as a 
actual frequency generator. You're not going to get super high frequencies because it's going to heavily depend on like your audio gear on your computer. And you also have to be really careful because you don't want to fry your sound card on your system unless you have like a five cent sound card and a USB isolator, which isn't hard to build. Not the sound card, but the isolator. Um, then you could actually use it as a frequency generator for working with electronics because then you have a nice sine wave source that you can modulate and see what's going on. So if you don't want to pay for a frequency generator, well, you have something where you can generate arbitrary frequencies and kind of get an idea of what's going on add dc offset add whatever you want hmm. i'm not gonna say it's perfect and it's gonna heavily depend on how your sound card she decides to reproduce that so an oscilloscope would still probably come in handy the vcv rack does have oscilloscope modules multiple of them if you download all the free extensions so you can see your signal and get an idea of what it would look like before you output that's crazy i'm actually looking at vcv rack right now i'm just actually if you are cheap you can use vcv as an oscilloscope anyway so if you want to use the line in on it and again you want to be sure not to blow your audio inputs then uh, you could hook up your circuit to it, and then even if it has nothing to do with audio, and use the oscilloscope and VCV. Huh. Not going to recommend it. Well, yeah, not you're not going to. But it's an option. Like, if you know the output of your circuit is, like, less than 10,000 hertz, and it's a thing, then there's no reason you couldn't. I will warn, though, that VCV can get rather CPU intensive if you're using a lot of modules. It's not horrible. Uh, they do have a nice little thing in there that can show you the latency on it to show you what's going on. And there's a few weird things you need to know about doing audio production if you've never done anything before to use it. Uh, namely, if you, you need to basically use an Osseo device if you're in Windows or probably use Jack if you're in Linux uh, to be sure that the audio system doesn't have super high latency. So why is the latency important? Why, what you're, I mean, is it because you're listening to the audio in real time? So it's, if you're just recording it, like with a pre-programmed set, it really doesn't matter. Honestly, you could have upwards of hundred milliseconds that probably won't bother you. It makes a little bit of a difference when like in VCV, when you're rewiring stuff, uh, if the wire takes, if when you disconnect or connect a wire, if it takes a little bit of time for the signal to actually change, it can be a little off-putting, but it's not a huge deal. But with other things, like I built this uh, MIDI controller that is actually mainly for use in VCV. I can use it with other things like Guitarix and Linux. So it's a foot pedal that has five buttons hooked up to an Arduino 32U4. So that's the Arduino chip that can also act as a keyboard or MIDI output device. So I have uh, five guitar foot pedal buttons in the metal case with that, and then an analog volume pedal that I'm pumping five volts out from the, from the 32U4 and then based on the volume pedal's position, uh, pumping that into the analog in on the 32U4. That's outputting a pitch wheel signal, whereas the other buttons are outputting various C notes from C2 to C6 to turn on, to toggle different effects for guitar, and then to do whatever I want to control with the pitch wheel. It's not actually pitch, it's just that in the MIDI spec, pitch has a higher resolution. But so when I'm using this with VCV rack, I can set up a bunch of bypass switches and then use any VCV effects and do that. But so for latency, that's highly important because anything above about, it varies what people are going to tell you. I would say around 15 milliseconds and you're going to really feel it. If when I strum a string, it takes a little bit for that signal to process and get out. It's going to be really hard to, to not mess up myself because I'm hearing that string twice, both when I play it physically on the instrument and from when it comes back out my speakers. If it's below 15, below 10, somewhere in that range, the it's going to coincide well enough that your, your brain doesn't really care and you can comfortably play. That's true with the guitar or that's true if you're using just a generic MIDI keyboard and just putting signals in. Like it's usually from a human input side to an output side. If the latency is too bad, it just feels off. And I realize that's a cruddy description, but there's not really a better way to put it. No, it makes sense. When you, you can actually tie these MIDI instruments into VCV and input and use that to control then. Yeah, so VCV, the way it does MIDI is actually really weird. Uh, so because it's emulating a real modular rack system, modular racks can use MIDI, but they usually don't use it much. Like they try to use as little as possible. And instead what they usually will do is a MIDI to control voltage conversion, which is what VCV rack emulates. And what that is, a system where, so control voltage standard in modular is one volt per octave. So assuming there's 12 notes in the octave, a 12th of the volt gives you up one note each. And then so if you have two volts, that would be in the second octave, three volts in the third octave, and so on and so forth. This gets really weird in VCV with some signals which need to go bidirectional. So with notes, it's simple. You know, you have zero volts at the lowest. I don't actually know how that works at the low end, but you get the idea. Um, and then moving up for each note, that, that's fine and all. But then with something like the pitch control, 
where you can slide the wheel up to get a higher pitch or down to get a lower pitch. That, that There's no good way to do that in voltage like you could in a real modular system because in a modular system, you would actually apply a negative voltage. You might uh, slide it up to plus one volt and slide it down to down a volt because negative voltage is a thing. Uh, so in VCV, it actually does emulate those negative voltages from the MIDI input. So it takes all your MIDI and just turns it into a digital control voltage. It can be a little weird with that though, with, with these conversions because with pitch then and modulation and other things it some of it fits together weird especially with that note versus which is a linear scale which doesn't have any negative end to it compared to like pitch where it does and actually i think with control voltage there is a negative end i think the I think zero volts is actually at C4 and it goes to like negative one volt for uh, C3 and then plus one volt for C5, which if you don't understand music stuff isn't super relevant. But the long and short of it is, is the MIDI conversion is really weird for VCV. But for any other program where the same MIDI input works, the latency is still important because you're still going to end up with the same issues. If it takes too long for when you press a button to when you get the output, it's it's going to have that issue. Okay. But really, that's, I think, all we have to talk about today. So I suppose we call this a podcast. This was Feral Logic episode 0x0002. And thank you all for listening.